Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. I'll be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired, and instructive word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, I pray one simple thing. Let each of us here feel and see what Luke intends us to feel and to see about our walks with you. So to that end, help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Here's Luke. He's writing this passage, this account of the early church about 30 years after it happened. So remember who Luke is. He, he traveled with Paul for years in Paul's church planting missions and his endeavors. Luke was involved in the life of churches on the Gentile mission field. Now, he's pinning the early history of the church, doing lots of interviews. He's doing his hard work about what happened. And here he tells us about the first few weeks, months of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And he is deliberately stating and unfolding four crucial aspects of God's gathered people. I have to believe he's very conscious of why he's putting this in there. It's like Luke has volumes he could write. Acts is not that long. He does say this. So we would do well to pay attention and to examine our own lives and our own church in light of what we read this morning. I could start off and say to our own lives and put it this way, does your life consist of a deep devotion to listening to the apostles' teaching? Does your life consist of a deep devotion to the fellowship with other Christians and eating together and generously giving for the common good? 
Does your life consist of a devotion to the ongoing gathering together regularly to pray and praise God? All right, so let's go to the text. If you look at verse 42, it seems that his structure is like this. Verse 42 is the generalized statement. Just thesis statements. What, this is what he has to say. And verses 43 to 47, re-say it. More specifically, unpack it and unfold it. So, let's start then with verse 42. Luke tells us now, remember, day of Pentecost... 3,000 believed and were saved and baptized and added to the church. And then the next thing he says is, and they were devoted or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So first, he says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Why would they do that? This is what I think is going on. 3,120 roughly somewhere in there to begin with. And we're going to see the Lord kept adding more and more people to be saved and baptized and come into the, the gathering, the, which is, means the church. But why would they do it? Well, according to the context that we have seen, because God had called them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that led each of these Christians to a deep devotion to the resurrected Lord Jesus. And that made them hungry to know Him more and more through the apostles' teaching. It just seems obvious. So remember, here we are. This began on the day of Pentecost. Thousands upon thousands of Jews from all parts of the world have come to Jerusalem for the feast. And then on that day, Peter's public preaching in the temple courts, there are thousands and thousands of Jews listening. 3,000 that day were saved. They're all Jews. They're synagogue going. They're fairly biblically literate. I believe... He's the Messiah. Something about your testimony to, we believe He's raised from the dead. They know a lot of Bible. They don't know a whole lot about Jesus. About His, his sayings to His close disciples and His apostles in His ministry. Some know this, they know about it, but unfold His teachings to us. And so, the apostles had a big job an ongoing job on their hands right from the get-go. They want to know, and they're going to teach what Jesus taught. They're going to open up the scrolls and the Scripture again and again and again and again and say, see these words written written a thousand years ago, 800 years ago, 1100 years ago, the guy we're talking about, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, this refers to Him. I have to believe, th you just think about it, that in the, in the, in, right here at the very beginning of the church, that these 12 guys in their teaching must be modeling their teaching 
after the way Jesus was teaching them over the previous month and a half. I mean, in his resurrection appearances. As Luke lets us know in volume 1, Luke 24, 27, he said this about Jesus. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And they're taking notes as Jesus keeps teaching them. They know key passage after key passage, psalm after psalm, the books of Moses. This refers to Him. They must be teaching this way, connected to the historical personage of Jesus. And they, these thousands of new believers, are devoted. Devoted to listening and learning and absorbing the teaching of the apostles. And notice, there are two things this text says about the apostles. Not only were they teaching, but verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so the teaching of the apostles with signs and wonders, Luke says, brought about this holy, wonderful, faith-filled fear of God. That, that's the word phobos, this awe, this fear. The fear of God is the work of the Holy Spirit that concentrates their minds on the reality of God's presence, on His holiness, on His justice. And thus, in Jesus, through these apostles, on His mercy. And that fear, therefore, caused these early believers to focus their attention on the teaching of the apostles, which we have in our New Testament throughout the last 2,000 years of church history. We live in a time right now where books are written. In my undergraduate biblical studies degree, I had to take a class on it. Seminars are given on how to build more numbers in your local church. And you can do it without at all paying attention to solid, biblical, expositional, doctrinal teaching of the apostles. But here, Luke lets us know of these four, here's number one. Here's the first mark of a healthy church according to these four principles. Paying attention and listening to the teaching of the apostles. Years later, the Apostle Paul will write to two young pastors emphasizing to them the need for sound doctrine. He says in 1 Timothy 4 to Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself, Timothy, and on 
the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. A few years later, close to death, probably A.D. 66 or so, Paul writes his last letter to Timothy. And says this in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And listen to the gravity to which Paul wants to wrap this up in. I charge you, preach the word. Okay. That's the simple sentence. Of course, I left out a lot. But that's the flow. I charge you to what? Preach the word. But he wants to say it this way to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because, Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Okay. Luke heard Paul say that kind of stuff for years. This is an issue Luke is very familiar with throughout the church and throughout the decades, not just this early, early few months in Jerusalem of what's happening. And so when he pens Acts, he makes sure he records the vital signs and the first vital sign of the church in Jerusalem, that teaching of the apostles and paying attention to it is central. That's the first thing he says in 42. The second thing Luke lists is fellowship. Now, of course, in our day and age, right, fellowship has become one of those Words, it's just Christian lingo, right? I mean, we call ourselves sovereign grace. Fellowship. Fellowship is the word in Greek, koinonia. Its root, the koina, is, means common. We have something in common to share in common. And so, at its core, it's a devotion to one another, believers who come to faith in Christ, because you cannot be truly, ongoingly devoted to the head without being devoted to the body. It would be strange. love my wife's head. Like the rat. This is biblical imagery here. 
they were devoted to the fellowship, to the gathering. That's why the Bible goes on to command in the New Testament, do not forsake, do not neglect your assembling and assembling, your periodic and the way you structure your assembling together as believers around Christ, around the teachings of the apostles, around praise, around worship, around prayer. That's the center of this fellowship. It's not around, oh, we like sports, so let's get around that. I love sports. That's not the ground of fellowship that he's talking about here. It means that. But the way Luke uses the word fellowship here in this context is even deeper than just hanging out together while we're all listening to the apostles' teaching. Here, it's the word koinonia. It means having in common, sharing life, and we'll see the context, meals in homes, eating, probably the Lord's Supper is referred to here, could be part of it, praising God. And prayer. But in the context, it also means sharing material goods, meaning money, stuff, things, in order to make sure everyone has their basic needs met. In verse 44, look at it. He says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Okay. That little phrase there, in common, it's one word in the Greek, and it's the word koina. It's the same root as fellowship, koinonia. Hear it? Koinonia. And this is the word koina, in common common. And so what fellowship looked like right here in the early church in Jerusalem, I don't know for how long, he says it this way in verse 45, I mean 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the money to all as any had need. Now, in a moment, Luke's going to talk about how important eating together, there's something about fellowship over food and intimacy, praying together, praising God together. But his first example of fellowship and sharing in common is the believer's care and love for one another. And it meant for them in their context, giving and sharing of wealth so that the ones who had true need had their needs met. Now, This is not communism. This is not the state saying you don't have a right to personal property. And it's not the church saying to anybody, you have no right to personal property. There is a commandment that says thou shalt not steal. 
which clearly you draw the inference someone owns something that you don't. This is what's assumed here, the right to personal property. What was happening, needs were arising, and Christian X and Y and Z would see that, and they would say, I got an use. I can sell that thing there. I can sell that little plot of land. I ain't doing anything with that. Or I can sell this stuff, or we make money here. Let's give to the, to the pot so that it's, when those who have need, we know where it's going to go. That's what they were doing. And his point is, it was the joy of the Lord that produced this overflow. I mean, years later, that's how Paul will argue raising money from all the churches when he writes to the Corinthians and he uses other churches. He says, no, no, no. Look, if, if you don't want to do this, don't. But gosh, I appeal to you. Look at how this other church here in Macedonia just begged us to give because of their need in Jesus already being met. Because it was the joy that did it. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. So the beauty of this, the beauty of what Luke lays out here, is it gives us Christians the freedom to do it. Or to not. It gives us the freedom to open our doors to fellow believers to open our refrigerators, to open our guest rooms, to open our checkbooks and our bank accounts for other believers for love's sake. That's what it does. It doesn't give other believers the right to steal our money or a right to break down the doors of our houses. There's a time to lock the doors of our houses and to care for one's spouse. Care for children. Make sure first they're fed and they're clothed and they're educated. Family structures is how God's built that. And then there's a second family structure that we're all brought into, which is glorious. It's the family of God in Jesus Christ. And then, yes, we can do this. We figure out how we do it. We figure out time. We figure out boundaries. We figure out priorities. But we have the freedom to be open, to be hospitable, to be giving, to meeting needs. Think about, when I think about, okay, what's happening here? Because the way that, you know, this is said, and even Barnabas, right, is going to have a, He's, going to, he's got real estate he's going to sell. Okay. And we don't see it in this structure necessarily any, anywhere else. We do see the giving, but the way that this happens so quickly in Jerusalem. I, I'm just he, 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 wondering, what's going on? Thousands of Jews have come to Jerusalem. They don't live there. Many Jews do live there. 3,000 are saved the first day. Within weeks, there's up over 5,000. Okay? 
it, it seems is probably many of these people, I'm here, I'm, I'm ready to be here in Jerusalem for two weeks. It's been a long travel. I haven't done it in years. I'm at Pentecost. This is great. They get caught, stuck with this fisherman Peter preaching. And before they knew it, they're baptized. And they believe in Jesus. Let's go home. I don't want to go home. Something like that seems to have been, must have been happening, right? Logically, with so many of these people, but they weren't set to stay for two, three months financially in places to live and places to rent. And so rooms are open, homes are open, pocketbooks are open, food is bought. Many people had need. It's not to say that they're, they're, when people have real need, they can't clothe and can't eat. There may have been some of those who live in Jerusalem. But it just seems to be this is what was happening, something Something like that. These first numbers of months and however they did it, and they made sure those who are poor among them and really are poor, and it's not because of laziness, their needs are met. And so many of them, many of these people that live there opened their doors. People to sleep, meals to be partaken of, And it was freely done. Now, before, this is easy for me to say because I'm a fellow sinner. This is an intimidating passage. And before we allow our sinful greed to take over and say, oh, yeah, that's right. It's freely done by those who joyfully want to. So, therefore, it doesn't refer to me. Think about those words. This is freely done by those who joyfully want to. Therefore, it doesn't refer to me. We should consider James 2, verses 14 to 17. He's writing from the context over the next decades in the Jerusalem church. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, this became a common way of living in different forms of how different churches on the Gentile mission would even do this. This is, became standard, loving and meeting one another's needs that you will always run into other people come into the church. This was happening in, in Paul's ministry where I'll take advantage of that. And Paul says, do not feed. Do not Clothe the lazy, irresponsible person who could, but
but refuses to earn their own money in Second Thessalonians. But then I'm going to come back again. Here's another apostle, Apostle John, writing years later in 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. They were clinging to the apostles' teaching, and they were devoted to this fellowship. And then thirdly, to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread in prayers. Now, it's not clear whether this refers just to eating food and meals and, and the praying that happens, the conversation that happens in the homes and smaller groups as they keep eating and eating together, if it's just that, or if with the eating, because the eating part to feed your belly is clear, it's not clear whether Luke, the way he puts this right here, breaking, but if he means what's happening in those meals is also the Lord's Supper may or may not be. But he does unpack at the core what he means drives home here in verse 46. Look at it. And day by day, attending the temple together, thousands, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous Luke is saying they love to, to get together for meals all over Jerusalem. Who knows how many homes needed to be used, but all over Jerusalem, they're going off away from the temple into homes, and they're feasting, they're eating, and they're hanging. And we'll see in a moment, they're praying. A lot of these Jerusalem homes were opening the doors of hospitality. There was a dynamic of Holy Spirit-inspired gladness and joy experienced in community. They received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were just constantly in awe of what was happening. I'm saved. Did you hear Bartholomew's teaching today? I'm going to memorize that parable. Okay. So day by day, they're going to large gatherings in the temple, Luke says. Lunchtime, they're leaving, they're breaking up, they're some kind of a strategy. Yeah, boy, that's got to be a headache to organize. But they're ending up in all kinds of homes, eating their meals and rejoicing and praising God at the wonder of all that is happening with them. This is fellowship. This is caring. This is eating. This is 
getting to know and enjoying each other, all in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center. That's the bonding glue that takes persons who are so different in their worldly likes. But when you bring that glue, the gospel, a 92-year-old woman can have a lot in common with a 22-year-old Christian woman. And they ought to be together. And all of that leads to the constancy of the fourth thing Luke says was the heartbeat of the early church. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These Christians actively were submitting to the Lord and His direction, His truth, His leading, His strength, the filling of the Spirit. They were doing this by the ongoing commitment of prayer. When they gathered in the temple grounds in big groups, evidently, when they broke up into smaller groups in all these homes, these were not just social events in order to talk about the football game or child rearing or politics. These were not church get-togethers to talk about everything but Jesus. These were people on fire. They were on fire together in order to get connected with God through prayer and addressing Him. They were doing it evidently, devoted to doing it. Probably there's formal praying, formal prayers, maybe formal times. And there's also got to be spontaneous praying. But the point Luke is making, they were together going vertical. And look at, look at the final sentence. Second part of verse 47. As this is happening, Luke then says, And the Lord added to their number day by day. Don't concentrate on that yet. Concentrate on the last part. Who? Those who were being saved. That's key. That's why you see this dynamic. This wasn't just a club or a fraternity. This, this is, Luke, I think you're saying, however it may, in different cultures it works itself out, but as Luke, you're saying, aren't you, this is how the saved live. In the context, it is getting saved that creates hungry listeners to the Scripture, to the apostles' teaching. It is getting saved that creates true Christ-centered fellowship and generous giving, sharing. 
It is being saved. It is being plucked out of darkness into the light that creates the desire of fellowship with other persons who have been also plucked out of darkness and into the light. That's what drives them to get to know and to care for and to eat with and to pray with each other together. Luke says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. He's saying what was happening there publicly in the temple and then in the homes, this is a phenomenon that's happening, that the community glowed, shined in the darkness. And evidently, there are many outsiders are absolutely there in the temple. I can, what's the guy teaching? What's happening here? There's outsiders watching, even attending meetings. Come to lunch with us. And some were being also hit by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, through the gospel. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. To be saved means to be delivered from God's wrath, from His future judgment that we all deserve. It means to have our sins forgiven, as we saw last week. We get saved. They got saved by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Who He is. And that it was Christ alone through His death and His resurrection. There on the cross, He paid justice. He bore our wrath so that God can be just in forgiving us. That's what it is to be saved. And when individuals get saved, they share that with others who are also in Jesus. And so no wonder... Luke writes, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And they devoted themselves to the prayers. And, my translation, fear came upon every soul. That's the key. Awe. Holy fear came upon every one of them. A joyful, trembling, sense of the, of the holy, the awesome, the ultimate one. That's what produced joyful seriousness 
in these four foundational ways of life. You don't play lightly with God. Luke will let us know that pretty soon, won't he, with Ananias and Sapphira. You don't play lightly with Christ or with the Holy Spirit. And you don't trifle with the teaching of the apostles. But with a Holy Spirit-inspired, glorious, faith-filled fear. As Paul would later say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Isn't he? Well, that's a fearful thought at moments. What a gift fear is. I don't know the last two weeks. Oh, yes. I see my sin. See my hardness of heart. Help me, Father. Oh, and I know you will. You promised I confess my sins. You're faithful. You're just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. It's a new day. Fear. Holy, gospel-centered fear is a precious gift. So, let us here at Sovereign Grace continue to examine our hearts, our lives, our priorities up against these four foundational principles of the true Christian life. The text does not say they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers when they could fit it into their busy schedules. It doesn't say they did this after a decade and a half when they were finally finished raising their children. Then say they did this as long as it didn't interfere in ballet class, football practice, or as long as I can fit it into my, I'm a self-employed businessman. They were not devoted to these things just so long as other important things didn't interfere. They were devoted to Christ, to His community, to the teaching of the apostles, because they were overcome with awe. They were overcome with the difference between all things worldly and the wonder and the beauty of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in community through the teaching of the apostles. And thus, they did it with glad and generous hearts, as he says then, praising God. 
He is merciful. Part of our Christian lives is the mercy of feeling pricked by the Holy Spirit. Challenged by the written word of God. It's mercy. Let's call upon the Lord now together. And oh Lord, thank you for how many times you've done it in your lives. And continue to do this in our lives. For he is good. And he will do it. Let's pray. Father, so I lead us in this now. That here, day by day, in our lives and all our responsibilities, to which we're also called to live up to, continue. Continue to work in us. Oh, do not, as David cried out, do not abandon me. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Do not fail or do not cease because of our sin and hardness of heart to work in us and to bring us again and again back in the context of our marriages and of our families and of our church and our work. Oh, we would be in awe of you with the precious gift of holy, faith-filled fear and joy. Thank you, Father. Thank you. In and through your Son, Jesus, and for the sake of his glory. Amen.